Hi, and thanks for listening to another audio podcast from Creekside Community Church, Narangba, Queensland. For more information and resources, please visit our website at www.creekside.org.au. Uh, well, it's great to be here this morning, and um, today I'm talking on a topic which is, I guess, pretty awkward to talk about. It's probably not the most popular topic, but the topic is evangelism. And if you're not really a church person, really what I'm talking about is how Christians can talk to people who aren't Christians about how to become a Christian. So you can imagine that lots of Christians are like, this is awkward, this is the thing I feel uncomfortable doing. A lot of non-Christians are like, this is the reason we don't want to come to church because people will shove it down our throat. So I get the thrill and the joy of talking about evangelism today. Um, I want to start by just acknowledging that there's a lot of reasons why, for those of us who are Christians, we are reluctant to talk to others about Jesus. For some of us, it's that we're just completely freaked out. We don't know what to say. If people ask us a question, we don't know how to answer it. If we we try to explain what it is that Jesus did, we're, we're thinking, well, that's not exactly how they said it in church. And we just get totally freaked out. For others of us, it's that, we don't want to come across confrontational. Like no one wants to be that guy. No one wants to be that girl. No one wants to be that Christian who just, you know, they're in the middle of talking about, oh, this is a lovely vase you got. That reminds me, you know, Jesus spent time with people and one of them must have, you know, you just get like, it's just the most ridiculous jump and it just becomes so confrontational. And you meet people all the time who are Angry Christians, you often see it on Facebook. They're often keyboard warriors. They're not willing to say it in person, but they'll, they'll rant and rave on Facebook as if they're like these mighty warriors who, who have all the answers. And a lot of us are reluctant to talk about Jesus because we don't want to be confrontational. For others of us, if we're honest, it's that we are just bad at it. We don't want to be unsuccessful. Uh, church attendance in Australia has dropped from 44% in 1950 to 18% today. So as a bunch of Australians who are Christians, we are really bad at this and we just have to cop it. We are really bad at it. Most churches are really bad at it. Most churches are not doing a very good job of this at all. And the fact is, a lot of us, have. if you've grown up in a church, you've been part of the unsuccessfulness that has gone on in Australian churches of reaching people. And you've been part of the process. And you've learned how to be unsuccessful at evangelism. And we've trained you to be unsuccessful. And you know this. So what you've done is you've said, well, let's focus on what we can be good at. We can build schools. We can start charities. We can serve the poor. We can care for the sick. And all those things are part of God's mission as well. But we're reluctant to talk about Jesus because we never see people come to faith. Or we do this crazy thing where we say things like, well, you know, we're just planting seeds. No one ever comes to faith, but we're just planting seeds. I don't want to alarm anyone, but when you plant a seed, what do you get? You get a plant. (laughs) The seed is the gospel. And when it's planted in someone's heart, a person becomes a Christian. That's what it means to plant a seed. For the tree to grow to full maturity, that's what it means to grow as a disciple. But we are called to be successful as evangelists. And we're not successful. We're freaked out and we don't want to be confrontational. So, aren't you so glad you've come to hear me talk about something that we're so bad at? 
I want to try to take the pressure off today. For a start, if you're driven by guilt and shame and inadequacy, that is not going to help you. So let's just get all that off the table. Second is this. Um, for the last eight years before I came to Creekside, I was involved in starting churches and we set out to start churches for people who were bad at evangelism. And we designed everything so that people like you and me who aren't very good at evangelism could basically help our friends become Christians because we believed that it actually was worth our life. And we didn't do, you know, everything right. Like most churches, there's all sorts of, of you know, you, you get things wrong. But we did see people become Christians. We had about 22% conversion growth per year. The National Church Life Survey contacted us through a research project because they found out we were the most evangelistic Baptist church in Queensland. And I remember one time, one of our leaders got up and shared about what was going on. And and she said, listen, I don't know how to describe our church. It's chaotic. It's all over the place. It's messy. But this is what I can tell you. Last Sunday, I was in church. On my right-hand side was a non-Christian. On my left-hand side was a brand-new Christian, and to their left was a non-Christian that they brought along to church. And we kind of went to church not knowing who was Christian and who wasn't. And I don't know if you've even talked to me, but I'm like whenever I meet someone for the first time, I don't assume they're a Christian. I'm kind of just used to being in church where there's as many non-Christians as Christians. That's just normal for me. So what I want to do today is I want to talk about a way of reaching out to people far from God where you don't need to be freaked out about what to say. You don't need to be the angry confrontational Christian that turns everyone off. And I don't think we need to be unsuccessful. I think if we're talking about Australia, there is so much reason for success. That's a whole other message. But I think we need to believe Jesus when he said, the harvest is plentiful. The harvest is plentiful. We can be fruitful. The Bible talks about faithfulness, but it talks about being fruitful as well. So, are you ready? You're so excited. Such an exciting topic. Okay, you need to fire up. Okay, here's some assumptions I'm going to make. I'm losing my voice today. I'm sorry about that. Here's some assumptions. Number one, you believe that everybody spends eternity somewhere. That you believe everybody spends eternity somewhere either in heaven or in hell. Uh, Revelation 20.15 says this, If anyone's name was not found in the book of life, he or she was thrown into the lake of fire. The fact is, we need to be serious about telling people about Jesus because eternity is on the line. Now, sometimes you'll meet people and they'll say, We've got to stop talking about heaven and hell. People don't want to hear about heaven and hell. We need to talk about how Jesus can change people's lives now. Now, that's true. People can change people. uh, Jesus can change people's lives now. In fact, he gives us the Holy Spirit to transform our lives now. But eternity really matters. None of my family are Christians. I've got to be honest. I'm not worried about them getting through today. I think they'll be okay. They'll have breakfast, they'll get up, they'll watch a bit of sport, they'll have lunch, they'll do things around the house. They'll be fine. For the most part, people are fine. But they won't be fine on Judgment Day. I don't know if you know what it's like to wake up in the middle of the night in tears, frantic, because none of your family are going to heaven. It's terrifying. And unless we actually believe this, we'll never actually do this. 
It'll just be a chore. It'll just be something we tick the box on. But there are real people in your life who have an eternal trajectory, heaven or hell. And we are serious at Creekside. We believe the Bible is clear. There is a place where people go after they die. And they either spend eternity with Jesus or without. And we are serious about doing everything we can about helping as many people as possible encounter Jesus and spend eternity with him. The second assumption is this, that you believe or we believe the cause of reaching lost people is worth our lives. Uh, Paul said this, I count my life as nothing. If only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying the gospel of God's grace. What he's saying is this, my life down here on earth is worth nothing unless I get on with the mission of completing the task that Jesus has given me. That is telling people about his grace. He went on to say, I would rather depart and be with Christ, which is far better off. But for the sake of others, I will remain. In other words, what he's saying is, listen, I don't know if you realize, but there is a place that we are going to. If you are a Christian, you are someone who belongs to Jesus. We are going to this place which is far better than anything this world has to offer. Would I rather be there? Of course I'd rather be there. Jesus is there. He is my everything. I'd rather be worshiping Jesus. I'd rather be in a place with no sin, no sickness, no evil, no doubt, no no conflict, no gossip, no bitterness, no anger, no jealousy, no divorce, no messed up lives. I want to be in a place like that. I want to be able to see Jesus face to face. But what he's saying is for the sake of those who are perishing, for the sake of the community of people of God who are on mission with Jesus, it is better that I do not depart, that I do not die, and I stay here on earth. The third assumption is this, that you and I believe there are three foundations to personal evangelism. The first is, The power of the gospel. I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. In other words, what the Bible teaches is you are not saved by what you do. You are not saved by how you live. You are not saved by good intentions. You are not saved by being committed. You are not saved by being faithful. You're not saved by having the right intentions or having a pure heart. You are rescued because there was a rescue... Uh, who saw you in your sin, in your shame, in your guilt, with an eternal trajectory that was heading for hell, and he reached into your broken world and he pulled you out of it. He took dead people and made them alive. And he basically took me and took many of you and said, you are rescued, you are saved because of what happened on the cross 2,000 years ago. The second is this, that you and I believe in the power of love. Now, this is not a song I'm about to break out and sing, but Jesus said, a new command I give to you, love one another as I have loved you, so that uh, you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So in other words, we might get every strategy wrong on how to reach people, But if we love people well, that will actually take us most of the way. Or we could get our strategy perfectly right and be so 
full of conflict and bitterness and jealousy and selfishness that people on the outside looking in going, why would I want to be a part of that community? That actually loving one another is the greatest witness we have to a world that is perishing. And thirdly, you believe in the power of prayer. Ephesians 3, 2021 says, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be the glory in the church. That you believe and I believe that dead people are not made alive because of a good strategy. That dead people do not come back to life because we happen to get the right words coming out. That actually there is a supernatural God who raises people from the dead. And when I say raises people from the dead, yes, he has done it physically, but he raises spiritually dead people to become spiritually alive in Christ. That he opens the hearts and minds of unbelievers, that he removes the veil that Satan has placed over them. And that ultimately, the mission of reaching people is a spiritual battle that is won through prayer by seeking God and wrestling on behalf of those who are perishing. Okay, so... They're my three assumptions. I'm not going to cover them today. They're like whole messages just in themselves. What I want to talk about today is a model or a strategy where you don't need to be freaked out. You don't need to be confrontational. You don't need to be unsuccessful. It's a very simple model. It's a very simple strategy. In fact, we talked about it a little bit last year, but probably didn't do much with it. And it's simply this. Invest and invite. Invest and invite. The first is this, to invest in the life of an unbeliever. That is to love them, to care for them, to be Jesus to them, to be in their life, to help them when they move house, to cook them meals, to watch TV with them, to go walking with them, to join a fitness group with them. Basically, I don't know, just somehow get in their lives, do life with them. Now, Why is this so important? Number one, Jesus modeled it for us. Luke 5, 30 to 31 says this. This is Jesus speaking. Oh, sorry, this is the Pharisee speaking to Jesus. Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Jesus literally surrounded himself with people who are far from God. Sometimes if you've been around church for a while... I haven't heard this for a while, but you you hear people say that we shouldn't be friends with people outside the church, that they'll lead us astray, that we've got to protect ourselves, that we've got to be pure, that you shouldn't really hang out with people who are far from God. That is not what Jesus did. Jesus often went out of his way to love those who are far from God. He's often around people who were considered sinners in the community. So much so that the religious leaders of the day kept asking him, why do you hang out with those ungodly, unholy, sinful people? And Jesus over and over again said, this is why I've come. I've come for those who are sinful. I've come for those who are desperately in need of my forgiveness. The second is this. It actually works. I know it sounds crazy. But if we actually surround ourselves with people who are far from God and we invest in them and we love them and serve them and pray for them 
and even be vulnerable with them, sharing our sins with them and sharing our doubts with them and sharing our journey with them. It actually works. Uh, Let me look at some stats for you. 86% of new converts are brought to faith by their friends and relatives. Um, By targeting doing evangelism through relationships, a church can evangelize responsive people and guarantee a smaller dropout percentage. Charles Arn said this, One of the most fruitful activities your evangelism committee could focus on would be helping each church member build a close friendship with one or more non-Christians. It would have far greater impact than training those same people to verbally present the plan of salvation. What he's saying is, what the research says is this, if all you did was invest in people far from God, love them, serve them, care for them, build real friendships with them, that is 90% of the work done. Out of all the people in your community, who are you most likely to reach? Those you know. Those you know. Like you might think, oh, I'm going to reach this random stranger. I'm going to reach someone through this program. I'm going to do this. No, no. 86% come through a friend or family member. So what do you need to do? What do I need to do? We become a friend of sinners. And you're like, yeah, but what's the strategy? That's the strategy. You just become a friend. But I thought I had to be No, you just have to be a friend. Oh, but I don't know what to say. You just have to be a friend. But what if they ask me a hard question? You just say, I don't know. You just be a friend. But what if I don't have the answer? Well, you just, you just, you let them know that you, you be the example of a clueless Christian who doesn't know all the answers, but somehow still got rescued by Jesus. And that might give them hope. Do you see how simple it is? And you go, yeah, but there's got to be some big, stra- this is it. Be a friend of sinners. Invest in the lives of unbelievers. Love them, serve them, care for them. Now, here's the problem. Joe Eldridge says this, within two years of becoming Christians, most of us have lost contact with all all our non-Christian friends. Who would agree that that's their observation? Within two years of becoming Christians, most of us have lost contact with our non-Christian friends. Okay, so let me just get this right. As Australians, we're not reaching people. The key to reaching people is to build friendships. And yet within two years of being a Christian, most of us don't have friendships with non-Christians. But what's the strategy? The strategy is just build friendships. Do you see how sinners got to build friendships? Um, there's a couple of reasons for this. Um, there's a guy called Stephen Covey. And he talks about this thing called blocking forces. Sorry, we're way ahead. Sorry. <laughs> uh, if you can just go back to next one. Next. Yeah, we're going back. Sorry. <laughs> okay. Right. Say I have a block. This is a physics lesson. I'm a physics teacher, so this is as exciting as it's going to get. Okay. Imagine this is a block, and I want to move the block in this direction. Next slide. What do I do? I need a driving force that's going to push the block in that direction. But if you want to move anything, you nearly always come up with what's called a blocking force. Most of the time, I guess if you're moving a block, that would be friction. Now, if you know anything about physics and forces, 
How do I move a block if I've got driving forces and blocking forces? Well, the most obvious answer is to increase driving forces. So if I push harder to overcome the blocking force, then everything is fine. That's how I move the block. The problem is this, just before we go on. The more you increase driving forces, the more pressure you put on the block. Is that making sense? The more you increase driving forces, the more pressure you put on the block. And what tends to happen in church is we might want people to do something. And it might be a really good thing, like giving generously or caring for the poor or telling people about Jesus. So we get up and we say, tell people about Jesus. And we push and we push and we push. And as the block, we're sitting there feeling pressure. We're feeling like, oh, but there's all these blocking forces stopping me from being able to tell people about Jesus. So what Stephen Covey says is this. If you want to move something without putting pressure on people, next slide, you also need to reduce blocking forces. That just makes sense. And that decreases the pressure on people. So rather than increase driving forces today, I want to talk about two blocking forces that stop us telling, uh, building friendships with unbelievers. The first is this. We are too busy trying to reach strangers. We're too busy trying to reach strangers. Many congregations direct their evangelistic proclamation to one segment of the population spectrum, but receive nearly all their new members from a different segment of the population. In other words, what happens is this. We get this idea. Now, I want you to just hold this intention. Let's say build a Christian school, right? And let's try to reach out to strangers that we don't know. So we get busy running programs and building institutions to reach strangers we don't know. And then what happens? We don't have time to be friends of sinners who we actually could get to know personally. Can you see the problem? And the problem is, is we go, yeah, but we're doing all this to reach people and the stats say, yeah, but the problem is, is that the people you are most likely to reach are people who you actually have relationships with. It's not strangers. It's not the community. We often talk about reaching the community as if the community is a person. I want you to talk about reaching Fred or John or Sally, real people who spend eternity somewhere. Is this making sense? We've got to get hold of the fact that programs don't reach people that actually we've got to target people we personally know. Now, just so I'm clear, I am for Carmichael. I work for Mueller, which is basically a very similar model. But I'm for Carmichael because I know there will be staff and volunteers leveraging Carmichael to build relationships and become friends of sinners. Is this making sense? But it's not some mystical, like, nebulous, oh, we're going to reach the community. It is Fred, Jane, Sally. It is real people, real students, real parents, real lives at stake. And that is why we do Carmichael. That is why we run programs in the community. It's why we do relationships outside the church. It's all about becoming a friend of sinners. Carmichael is only as successful in as much as it allows us to build friendships with sinners. If it is not allowing us to build friendships with sinners, it is a waste of time from a gospel perspective. It may be a good thing for the community, 
but it's not good for people's eternities. Is this making sense? It is only that we take and leverage the institution and programs for the sake of reaching out and building friendships with sinners. The second one is this. Many, sorry, let me just um, skip this. We'll just skip the circle of influence. We can just go to the next slide, uh, B. We're too busy running church programs. The average Christian can be isolated by a number of church activities, sometimes five nights a week. Kids clubs, prayer meetings, music ministry, planning meetings, deacon and deaconess meetings, all very worthy activities, but the average Christian may have no time for the unbelieving world. Who's been part of a church where they're out five nights a week for church stuff, right? A lot of you. Okay, now, here's the thing. Again, do those programs reach people? No, programs don't reach people. People reach people. We can run a thousand programs and not be successful. The church in Australia has been doing it. We've got 60 years of history, 44% to 18%. We were good at running programs. We just didn't become friends of sinners. Can you see the problem here? And again, you're going, yeah, but the programs, this is the problem. Okay, so let me see if I explain this as gently as I can. Imagine you have, uh, next slide, if we can have a look at the next slide, that's all right. Imagine you were to think about ministry in church. Most of the time, when people think of ministry in church, they think of the top left-hand quadrant. Formal programs inside the church. You know, creche, Sunday school, youth group, women's groups, men's groups, um, I don't know, reading groups, craft groups, I don't know, whatever. And we often think formal ministry, formal programs inside the walls of a church or in our case, inside the structure of a church. Now, how many of those programs did Jesus run? Let's just list off, let's just do a bit of a brainstorming session. Let's just list off some of the formal programs that Jesus ran. Mark, are you you good at this? Come on. None. There's got to be some, surely, because we've been doing this for years. The church is awesome at this. We're awesome at running formal programs inside the church. (laughs) The cybership programs. Yeah, well, it's interesting. Even, I mean, Phil will bang on about this. (laughs) Here's the thing. Is it wrong to run formal ministries inside the church? No. Jesus said, or Paul said, by all possible means. By all possible means. So again, this is a formal program. It's a good, I think it's good. I, I'm part of it. I, I like to think it's good. But if your only way of seeing ministry is that you help out once a month with kids church and that's your whole contribution to the kingdom of God and it's a formal program inside the walls of a church, that's missing the whole entirety of Jesus' message and his life. Ministry is not 7 a.m. to 9 a.m. on a Sunday morning or, you know, 7 p.m. to 9 p.m. on a Friday night. It is every moment, every day, every dollar, every relationship, every opportunity. That is ministry. So it's not just formal inside the church. It's also formal outside the church. Carmichael is a great example. We could go on and on. Salvation Army, World Vision, etc. But it's also formal, uh, sorry, informal inside the church. So when you invite someone over for dinner, 
When you pray for someone, when you get up and you walk across the room and you welcome someone at church, when you're kind to people, when you affirm them and celebrate them and encourage them, when you tell me, Mark, even though you had no jokes today, I generally think you're sometimes funny when you speak, right? That's affirming and that's an informal ministry that you have. There's also informal outside. And Phil's been on and on about this with missional communities. It's about being in people's lives and and going over to the neighbor's house and having a barbecue and helping them move house or helping people, you know, renovate or, I don't know, doing something informal for people, just being with people. Now, we need people to do formal ministry inside the church. We need people to do formal ministry outside the church. And if you're part of this community, it would just be great if you could at least be volunteering in some formal capacity on a regular basis, you know, weekly, fortnightly, or monthly. It doesn't have to be a lot. But that would actually make the running of this church way more effective. We live in an institutional society. And Paul said, by all possible means, to the Jews, I will become a Jew to win the Jews. We live in an institutional society. It makes sense in our society to run institutions. I'm not anti-institution but only so that it can be that we will become friends of sinners. Is this making sense? It's all about becoming friends of sinners. Okay, I could bang on about this for ages. Uh, Next slide. The second thing we need to do in our strategy is invite. We need to invite them into a relevant environment. And again, if you ask why, I'm having a nightmare here today, uh, why... Number one, because it happened in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 14 says this, Anyone who speaks in a tongue should pray. Oh, hello. Thank you. <laughs> this is the experienced speaker coming out. In you. Oh, everyone, oh, look, at everyone's coming out of the woodwork here. Just talk amongst yourselves while I get sorted. <laughs> So, 1 Corinthians 14 says this, Anyone who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret what he says. If the whole church comes together and everyone speaks in tongues, and some who do not understand or some unbelievers come in, will they not say that you are out of your mind? What Paul is doing here, he's writing to the church at Corinth, and he's saying, listen, there's this activity and there's all sorts of beliefs about what, whether this happens today or not. I'm not even going to go into that, but... At the time, it was very clear that in the, in the church environment, people would speak in tongues. That is, they basically speak in other languages. It was a supernatural thing. It was miraculous, really. And it was weird for non-Christians. It was just freaky. Christians um, did it, but non-Christians were really freaked out by it. And Paul says, listen, I don't want you to stop being a Christian. I don't want you to stop practicing your Christian practices but I want you to be so loving and kind to your friends, the sinful, well, we're sinful, but to your friends, your unbelieving friends, so that when they come in, you actually make allowances for them. In the same way that if you have someone over for dinner and you and your spouse are having an argument, you put it on hold while you have guests in the house, right? And if you don't, that's just a bit of a life tip that I've picked up along the way. I'm not even married and I can see that, right? That's just a bit of a life tip. 
So, so the idea is that we are being kind and considerate and hospitable to people when they come in. What Paul says is, hey, if someone comes in and they, they look at unbelievers and say, hey, they're out of their mind. You need to have an interpreter. You need to make, help them make sense of what's going on. You need to make concessions. So what that means for us as a church is we are on this journey of becoming more and more attentive to maybe some of the concerns or fears of people as they come in from the outside. And we are not disregarding what it means to be a Christian. We're not changing our practices, but we are making concessions. We are being kind and considerate and trying to explain what we do. We're trying to do that because it actually matters. And it's biblical. And it's a good thing to do. Second is this. It actually works. I mean, over and over again, I I would always have church leaders tell me, you can't just run this seeker-sensitive type church. It's not biblical. And I'm thinking, well, it is biblical. I mean, that's just there's your biblical framework right there. Oh, it's watering things down and it doesn't work anyway because Australians aren't interested. I'm like, sometimes I just want to say, come along. Just come for six weeks and you'll see that you can teach the Bible and you can practice the Christian practices and you can do it while believers sit beside unbelievers. Well, friendships occur between believers and unbelievers and it actually happens. Uh, number one, inviting allows unchurched people to be exposed to an evangelist. About somewhere between 1% and 10% of Christians have the gift of evangelism. So if you don't think that you're the person who's going to actually lead people to Christ, you can be involved in leading people towards Christ. So that when you invite them to church, someone with a gift of evangelism can encounter them, either through like an alpha course or service, and they can lead them to Christ. Second is this. It allows unchurched people to have multiple exposure to Christians. Now, imagine that you look into my life and you were to see a reflection of Jesus, right? But the problem is, is that I am not a good reflection of Jesus. I am a broken reflection of Jesus. But if you begin to look into three or four people's lives, so next slide. If you begin to look into three or four people's lives and I look into Mel's life and I'm like, oh, I can see she is like Jesus in this way, in this way, in this way. But Margot is like Jesus in this way, in this way, in this way. And Rod is like Jesus in this way, in this way, in this way. And what happens is you begin to see a clearer picture of who Jesus really is. What they've found is in evangelism, the more exposure you have to multiple Christians living their lives, the more likely it is you'll understand the gospel. And the third thing is this. Inviting people allows them to belong before they believe. You'll see on that graph there, this is a chance of someone staying at church and this is the number of friendships they have in six months. And you think they stay at church because they like the preacher. They often stay at church in spite of the preacher. You think they stay at church because of the programs. They often stay at church in spite of the programs. You think they stay at church because we have great food. Don't get me wrong, I'm for great food, right? But it's often in spite of not having great food. I'm not saying those things are bad. Of course we want all those things. 
But if you want to know the number one factor in whether or not someone stays at church, it's that they build six friendships or seven friendships, I think it is, within six months. Seven friendships, six months, there's something like a 98% chance they'll stay. Now, do you think it's likely that if a person doesn't feel welcome coming into our church, that they'll build friendships with seven of us within six months? Probably not. It gives them a chance to belong before they believe. Okay, I've ranted and raved for way too long now. That's our strategy. All I'm going to get you to do is this. It's really practical today. Number one, invest. Uh, I don't know if you want to take out your phone or take out a piece of paper. I don't really know what you want to do. But I would like you at some stage today or some stage the next week to write down three people. Don't write community. Don't write programs. Don't write Carmichael. Don't write RE. Don't write, you know, Narangbar Valley High School or Narangbar Valley Primary or, you know, this club. Write down three individuals' names, real people who have a chance of receiving the Holy Spirit and becoming a Christian, who need Jesus. I just want you to write down three people's names and just start praying for them and loving them and investing in them. That's it. And you're like, yeah, but we've got to know what to say. That will come. Oh, but we have to be really bold and correct. That will come. You just need to be a friend of sinners. Do you reckon we could do that? I reckon we could do that, right? It's pretty easy. Okay, second thing is this. I want to give you two really quick opportunities to invite. So next slide. Um, sorry, this PowerPoint's a nightmare too. There's about 45 slides. So um, yeah, next slide if that's okay. Tonight, we have a night service. Why did God allow the possibility of evil and suffering? My friend Corey, his daughter, got told she needed a heart transplant about seven, eight, nine months ago. I can't remember how long ago now. Um, there's been a massive journey that he's been on. Uh, she has had the heart transplant. They've come back to Brisbane. The heart transplant's been successful. He's going to be sharing, as a Christian, why he did not give up on God and how his faith survived the last six to eight months. So if you just want to invite anyone to church tonight, it's going to be here. It'll be over there. We have about eight cheesecakes from the Cheesecake Factory. It's going to be fantastic, good food. Um, Next Sunday morning... Uh, Next slide, if that's okay. We have an outreach service. I believe in God, but I don't think religion should take over my life. This is a huge issue for a lot of people. I believe in God, but I don't think religion should take over my life. And we're going to address that question. We're going to address that kind of, I guess, that, that attitude, that mindset. And we're going to try to help people kind of journey through what it looks like to encounter the God of the universe who does turn your life upside down and inside out and transforms your entire eternal trajectory. But at the same time, helping people understand it's not about religion, it's not about works, it's not about commitment, it is about receiving the Saviour of the universe who comes and lives and gives life and breathes new life into us and gives us joy and peace and self-control and wages war against our sinful nature so that we can become the full people that God made us to be. So that's it. That's all we're doing. Invest and invite. That's our strategy. That's our secret. If you want to know how churches in the West reach people, invest in the lives of unbelievers, become friends of sinners, invite them to a relevant environment. Um, what if you stand with me and we'll pray.
Father, thank you so much that you love us and care for us. And we do pray, Jesus, that you would bring many people tonight, people who are far from you, people who need your forgiveness. We pray for Corey as he shares. We pray for the worship. We pray for everything that's been organized, Father. And we ultimately pray for individuals, people right now that you've placed in our heart, even right now, God, who would you like us to invite? We've still got six or seven hours before tonight. Who is it that you'd like us to invite? Place that person on our heart, Father, and give us the courage to do that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.